Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. We're going to do a short series on, on money. And as soon as I say that, everybody goes, woo, yeah, that's our favorite thing, right? Don't, don't be loud when churches speak on money. Well, um, my passion, I just have one passion, and that is to, to preach what's in here. That's it. And so last year, uh, we went through the entire book of Romans in, in, uh, in uh, summer. Uh, we, were, we, we got in-depth at the Psalms. We just finished a series on prayer. Uh, but the thing is that if you want to call yourself a preacher of the Word, and you want to preach the whole counsel of the Word from Genesis to Revelation, at some point you have to talk about money because the Bible talks a surprisingly a lot about money. In fact, more than, for sure, more than 2,000 estimates vary, but for sure more than 2,000 uh, verses in the Bible are about money. And to just give you a quick comparison, uh, prayer, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, I love talking about that, there's a little less than 500 verses in the Bible about prayer. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that money is more important than prayer. Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that money is, is central to our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord. Uh, Jesus in his parables, I mean, if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, he's going to talk to you about money. Uh, if you go through all of Jesus' parables, he, he, gives, he teaches 38 different parables in the Gospels. Of those, 16 of them are about money and possessions. That's almost half. Okay, 288 verses in the Gospels are about money and possessions. That's 10% of all the verses in the, in, in the Gospels. So there's a lot about money in the Gospels. Now, what I want to do in this series is, is there's been so much, you know, different extremes and stuff in the church about uh, money. Of course, you've got the, the prosperity teachers on the one end, and, it, and, it, and it's all about, you know, uh, you know, just sow a seed, sow a seed, sow a seed, and then God's going to give you back more money, and, and we're just, we're not into that at all. And on the other hand, though, you've got this other mindset about money, which is uh, guilt, 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 and lots of petty thinking, uh, lots of Christians. There's a whole strain of Christian thought, which basically is if a person works hard and becomes successful in business, and they have a nice vehicle, they have a nice house, it's like there's like this whole strain of Christians that kind of looks at them and thinks they're worldly, right? And so there's this whole thing around money, too, of kind of guilt. On the one hand, it's sort of this prosperity obsession with, with, with money and material things. And then on the other hand, there's almost this guilt. On the other extreme, there's this whole guilt mentality about money that if you have money, if you have nice things, you're not spiritual. God must be mad at you, those sorts of things. And, and really, the only people who are truly godly are the ones who have given everything away. And so there's, I, I feel like a lot of Christians today even kind of labor, especially in our culture, because if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world and throughout history, we are rich. There's not even a question. Most of us here are rich by the world's standards, being in the top uh, percentage, percentages of, of wealth in the world. But many of us, I think, labor under this sort of cloud of condemnation about that, that almost our, our, our wealth as a nation, as a culture, as Christians, almost makes us uh, not spiritual or makes us, you know, in line for judgment from God. And so this first message, I want to just talk about God's perspective about wealth. And in this message, I want to make sure that we don't feel guilty about the things we shouldn't feel guilty for, but that we feel guilty for the things we should feel guilty for, all right? And sometimes there needs to be a little discerning there, but it's because I think as Christians we have some, some wrong perceptions about money. And so the first question I want to ask is, is it bad to have money? Is it bad to have money? Is it bad to have material things and a comfortable life and, and wealth? Is it bad? Well, the, the resounding answer is no. And lots of the most godly people in the Bible, I'm going to show you a bunch of examples now, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, okay? Lots of the most godly people in here were incredibly wealthy people. Now, thankfully, lots of them in here were poor too, and we don't, I, that gets emphasized a lot, and I don't want to lose that. But one of the things that often gets lost is it's not just poor people who are godly in the Scriptures. Many of the most godly people in the Scriptures were in not just a little bit wealthy, they were incredibly wealthy, and I'll show you a few examples, okay? And so let's start with Abraham. Genesis 13, verse 2 says, Now Abraham was very rich, okay? Not a little bit rich, not just rich, he was very rich. Now it says here he was very rich, first of all, in livestock. Now, that doesn't bother us Mennonites too much. It's like, oh, he was a big farmer, okay? So it's okay to be rich in a lot of animals. But I want you to notice it doesn't stop there. 
Abram was very rich in livestock and also in silver and in gold. Okay? In silver and in gold. Now, if we go to another passage in Genesis chapter 24, I'm going to show you a passage here, and this is the, from the famous story where Abraham's servant is going to find a wife for, for Isaac. And uh, he makes a very interesting statement about Abraham's uh, wealth, because the Bible actually talks a number of times about Abraham being wealthy. Uh, look at this one, Genesis 24. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. So who has blessed Abraham? God. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him. So God has. God has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. Okay? So according to the Bible, it's God who gave Abraham his riches, and Abraham was very rich. Okay? This is important. Now, did all these riches and material comforts and wealth make Abraham a less spiritual person? Absolutely not. James chapter 2 is the New Testament, and look what we find out about Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So Abraham was both very, very wealthy, and not just in animals, but in money and in material things. And at the very same time, he was also a friend of God. Okay? Clearly, to be wealthy is not to be unspiritual. It does, to be wealthy does not equate to worldliness. And again, we could go through the whole Old Testament. I could show you many other examples of not just a little bit wealthy, but very wealthy people. Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, David, Hezekiah, and on and on. But it's also in the New Testament. Okay? So why don't we jump to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. I'll show you another example. This is, this is right after uh, Jesus' uh, death. And so a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, is going to be the one who gives his tomb for Jesus to use. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, okay, named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now again, it has been emphasized often, and it should be emphasized, that many of Jesus' disciples were poor. I love that. Doesn't matter how well, you don't have to have a certain amount of wealth to be a disciple of Jesus. That's amazing, okay? You can have absolutely nothing and be a disciple of Jesus. That is for sure, and that has been emphasized in the church. But something that isn't also emphasized is that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and he was also a disciple of Jesus, okay? And he wasn't the only New Testament disciple of Jesus who was wealthy. There's also the, the case of Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, uh, we're introduced to him in John chapter 3, a famous story. He comes to Jesus and says, how can I enter into the kingdom of God? And that's where Jesus tells him the whole born again thing. And Nicodemus goes, huh, how can I be born again? Right? There's that famous story. Well, later on, Nicodemus becomes a follower. He's part of the early church. And John chapter 19, this is also after Jesus' death, we find this about Nicodemus. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Okay? Now, that might not say much to you or to I today in our culture because we don't use myrrh and aloes anymore, okay? But the thing you have to understand is that myrrh was unbelievably expensive, unbelievably expensive. In Roman times, it was worth its weight in gold, or at times it was worth more than its weight in gold, okay? Myrrh was that precious. It was that expensive, and it was used in funerals. It was so expensive that the average person, if you had someone in your family die and you were, were going to embalm the body, you might use half a pound of myrrh for the embalming, okay? Um, Nicodemus used for Jesus 75 pounds. That's enough myrrh for 100 or 200 funerals, okay? We're talking about tens and tens and tens of maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, to put it in perspective, some, like the Roman uh, Caesars, like the Roman emperors, were not known for being frugal, Okay? And they spent wealth obscenely and lavishly. And there are cases of Roman emperors being buried with 60 or 80 pounds of, of myrrh. And Nicodemus used 75 on Jesus. So we're talking about a gigantic amount. This man was, was crazy wealthy. In fact, there's writings from the Jewish time, the, the period, period of time there when this was written, which I actually looked up because I wanted to see it with my own eyes. So I looked up the, the Talmud which is a Jewish writing from that time. And in the Talmud, so I saw it with my own eyes this week, I looked it up, and uh, it's amazing what Google can do, right? You can look at anything, you have to go find some uh, ancient library anymore. But, uh, but in the Talmud, it talks about Nicodemus, 
So a, this is a Jewish writing from a time period, Nicodemus and two of his friends, that they had so much wealth that these three guys together could have fed the entire city of Jerusalem for 21 years. Okay? So this is a man who was massively, massively wealthy, not just a little bit. He was extravagantly wealthy, and he was a disciple of Jesus and loved Jesus with all his heart. Okay? So to be wealthy is not to disqualify you. I want to show you one more example, a woman, Joanna, the wife of Cusa. And I've, I talked about this in a message uh, several years ago, but um, uh, I don't know if you ever wonder how Jesus and his disciples were supported in their ministry. Okay, so for the first 30 years of his life, you know, Jesus, you know, well, in his young adult years, in his adult years, he was working, uh, you know, as a carpenter, uh, probably for his dad or whatever. But then when he turned 30, he goes into full-time ministry, right? And that's the, what we read about in the gospel. So him and his 12 disciples for the last three and a half years of their life, they're just traveling around doing ministry. And we actually know that his entourage was bigger than just him and the 12, because in Luke chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples to the towns. And so scholars tell us that probably as he's traveling around in the gospels, uh, at any given time, there's probably an entourage of 100 people to 500 people who are traveling with him all the time. How were all these people supported? Okay, that's the question. How, how were these people supported? Now, of course, Jesus did some miraculous feedings, right? There's the feeding of the 4,000 and there's the feeding of the 5,000. But I really doubt that every day for breakfast and lunch, he was doing that for his entourage. Okay, another miracle. Oh, great. And, and we just feed everybody. So how were they all provided for? How was his ministry supported? Well, Luke chapter 8 uh, gives us a fascinating little bit of insight, verses 1 to 3. And Luke writes this, gives us some background details. And I love passages like this. But uh, Luke writes, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And now verse 3, And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. So part of Jesus' entourage while he was doing ministry was a group of very wealthy women. And these women, it's these wealthy women who were bankrolling, uh, you know, Jesus' ministry with his disciples, uh, you know, not just the 12, but the 72 and everything else. They were providing for them out of their means. So again and again and again, we see, obviously in the Bible, it is not a sin to be wealthy. It is not, does not make you less spiritual to be wealthy, okay? Um, now, so having said that, so we've looked at that, that's very true. Now, at the same time, we've got to look at the whole counsel of God's Word. And remember, I told you there's more than 2,000 verses in here about money. God knows that money is a big part of our spiritual life, actually. So on the one hand, we know that wealth doesn't disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus. It doesn't make you a lesser follower of Jesus than a poor person. At the same time, we also know that the Bible certainly does have some very serious warnings about money. So Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 25, Jesus himself says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now, sometimes what preachers and teachers do is they want to hone in. They want to make people feel guilty. They want to just come in with a message and really, uh, really hit people. So you, you, you hone in here on a verse like this. And then you look out at a, at, a, at a church in a country like ours and you say, we are the rich. And, and you just hammer in on a passage like this. But here's the thing. When we're looking at what the Bible says, we always have to look at the whole thing. So yes, there is a warning here. But this is not saying, Jesus' intention here is not to say that everyone who is rich is on their way to hell. Absolutely not. So what we have to say is we have to look at these sets of passages. We have to say it is certainly true that there are wealthy people who love Jesus and walk with Jesus. And it is also certainly true that there are wealthy people who are under condemnation who are on their way to hell. Both are true. See, the fact of the matter is wealth is neutral. We're going to look at this more in just a little bit. But wealth is neutral. You can be very wealthy and in love with Jesus and you can be very wealthy and not in love with Jesus. But the same is true of being poor. You can be poor and in love with Jesus, but you can also be poor and far from Jesus and on your way to hell. There will be rich and poor people in hell. There will be rich and poor people in heaven. Riches themselves and wealth are neutral. And we're going to explore more and more of that in this message, but I, I want to go to another classic passage that is sometimes used by uh, preachers and teachers sometimes. It's kind of like a two-by-four passage when you really want to whack the flock, okay? 
And certainly, when the flock needs to be whacked, let's whack them, right? Um, but I always want to make sure, let's, uh, again, one of my points in this message is I want us to feel guilty about the right things. I want us to feel guilty about what the Bible tells us to feel guilty about and not about the things that the Bible doesn't tell us to feel guilty about, okay? And so I'm going to take you to a classic passage that often causes people to squirm, okay? And then we're just going to look at this a little closer. And James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, so this is one of those passages, you know, uh, Christians in North America, we kind of read this in our devos, and it's like, ooh, I, I don't feel so good about this passage. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So that's one of those make-you-tremble-in-your-boots kind of passages. So sometimes what will happen as Christians, we read a passage like this, and we actually think James's point here is to make us all question our, our salvation, okay? So now the question I have to ask, though, is, who does James have in mind when he writes this passage? This is really important because he's saying some serious things here, okay? Does James have in mind here a middle-class Christian, you know, living in North America here in the 21st century, who, you know, to, in order to provide for his family, he's honest, he's integrity, or it's a she too, could be, whatever, either way, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all good with that. But, uh, um, but he gets up every morning, and he starts a business, and he works really hard, because he wants to provide for his family, and he becomes very successful and prosperous as a result of his business. Is that who James is thinking of here? Someone who has worked very hard, who has honesty and integrity, and who has become successful and has a nice home, okay? If that's who James is picturing here, then we all need to sell our houses and live in cardboard shacks because it's not worth going to hell over a nice house. We just have to be honest. Let's not be hypocritical. If James is picturing a middle-class Christian who works hard to provide for himself and has become successful, if that's what this passage is about, then we need to listen to this passage and obey it and, and get right with God. But the fact of the matter is, if we read this passage in its context, we're going to find that James is speaking to someone very specific, and that is not who he has in mind. If we go to the very next verse, let's, let's look what James says. If we keep reading here, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Now, I'm going to finish this passage in just a moment, but let me just say this. James is not mad in this passage of people for having wealth. He's mad at them for how they got their wealth. He's not mad at them for having wealth. He's mad at them for how they got their wealth. This is very important. And you're going to see this in the rest of this passage. Which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay? James is prophetically speaking against a group of wealthy people who have gotten obscenely rich off of violence and corruption. That's what he's speaking about in this passage. And you know, this week, I, I want to make sure, because I'm like, Lord, I want to make sure this is not just me thinking up my own thoughts and I'm getting this wrong. I looked up a whole bunch of commentaries, because I wanted to see what did they say about this passage. Every single commentary I looked up agreed with me on this exact point. They all said the same thing. James is not talking to believers in this passage. Throughout the book of James, and if we had time, I would take you through the book of James and show you. Throughout the book of James, over and over again, James uses the term brother. Now, brothers, watch your tongues. Brothers, watch out, you know, don't uh, show favoritism to the rich. Brothers this, brothers that, brothers when you teach, brothers don't fight. He, go and read the book of James. It's brothers, brothers, brothers. This passage, verse 1 of chapter 5 here, does not start off with him addressing brothers. It says, now you rich. James is prophetically speaking out against rich people in that day and age who were oppressing many of the Christians who were in the church. This, this passage isn't about making every Christian for the rest of history shaking their boots that maybe I'm one of these people who's on my way to hell because I have a nice bed to sleep in at night. He's actually encouraging the Christians in this church that the people who are oppressing them, God sees the oppression and there will be justice. This is not a fear for your salvation passage. It's supposed to be an encouragement passage. And you know, we still have people like this in our, in our world today. Okay? Um, and again, I know that some Christians, it almost, as I was, as I was prepping this message even, I, I, I knew how hard, it's almost like we, we want these passages to convict us, that if we don't let them convict us, it's, it's sort of like uh, uh, we're, not being, we're not being spiritual. Um, but the thing is, again, 
If you're here today and you're a Christian, now if you were, if you were planning to murder someone this week to make some money, you need to take notes right now, okay? Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay? That, that's what this passage is about. And we have people like this in, in our world still today. If you, if you want to get rich by corruption and violence, this passage is for you. But this passage is prophetically speaking. I mean, I think of, um, um, you know, some of the strongmen dictators who have ruled various countries over the years in places like Africa who have accumulated billions of dollars in personal wealth at the expense of their people by violence and corruption as their people starved. Those people are included in this. And God says, I see the evil on earth and I will bring justice. And in Asia and the Middle East and places like that, yes, wherever you find people who have fattened themselves in the day of slaughter and have gotten wealthy by corruption and violence, absolutely yes, God says, I'm going to bring justice. But wealth itself is neutral. Wealth itself is neutral. A Christian person who gets up every morning, who has integrity, who loves his family, who loves God, who has a generous heart and works very hard and actually becomes successful because of God's blessing and has a big house and maybe a nice vehicle or two or three or however many. There's not a law about it. God says, and actually, even when I say it, you can almost feel the resistance, right? That's not spiritual to be well off. Let me show you this. The Bible is very clear that it is the love of money that is bad, not, not money itself. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Let's read this. I'll, I'm going to show you three passages. For the love of money. Okay, not money. does not say, for the having of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That's not what it says. I want us to feel guilty about the right things and not about the wrong things. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And one of the reasons I want to preach this message at the start of this series is I want, to take, I want to take a weight off. First of all, I want to take a weight of the burden of condemnation and judgment of many people who've been successful and petty-minded Christians in churches have looked at them and judged them for being successful and said they're proud, they're worldly because they've been successful and God's blessed them and made them good at something. We need to take that burden off them and we need to, be, we need to repent of judgment and, petty, and pettiness. And another burden I want to take off is that there might be young people here in this church this weekend who you might be under the false impression that the only way to serve God is you've got to get, you've got to get hired in a church, maybe here or somewhere else, and that's the only way you can serve God. But maybe actually God wired you to be really good at business. And maybe actually God wired you to be successful. And if that's the case, you need to go out and be as successful as you possibly can for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. It's not money that's bad, it's the love of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Well, let's just, I'll just show you, this isn't just one passage in isolation. Hebrews 13, uh, 5. Keep your life free from the what? The love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, as we go in this series, we can unpack that a little bit and look at what does the love of money look like. But we saw in that verse there, in this verse here in Hebrews 13, right off the bat, a part of the antidote is just contentment, okay? Uh, generosity, things like that. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, um, Paul says this. This is an amazing passage. This, this passage is, is mind-blowing to me because he, he perfectly describes. In this passage, it's like he saw ahead 2,000 years in the future what North America would look like in, 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 in the 21st century, in 2017, and it looks like he just put it straight down on paper. Okay, so let's read this passage. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, first of all. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Lovers of self. Now look at the next one. Lovers of money. Okay, not just that they have money. They are lovers of self and lovers of money. Proud arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if these things apply to our lives, these are things to feel guilty for and repent of. Having money is not on this list. Being a lover of pleasure instead of God. Now, that really hits at something for a lot of people in our culture, including a lot of Christians. If your whole life 
instead of serving God, instead of loving other people, if it's all about pleasure. Now, some Christians take this to the extreme. If you ever have pleasure, if you ever have fun in life, if you ever go on a vacation, then obviously you don't have a zeal for the Lord. That's absolutely ridiculous. A human life, God works six days and on the seventh day he rested. A whole human life is a life that will include rest and leisure and play and fun. But if it's six days we're going to seek for pleasure and leisure and one day we're going to serve the Lord, that's gotten messed up and I think that's gotten flipped in our culture in many cases and that's something we do need to be convicted of. But having money, having wealth is not a sin in God's eyes. And now, again, I know that some of you are maybe a little bit anxious and you're wondering to yourselves already right now, do I have the love of money? Now you're just switching it to that one. And again, like I said, we'll look at that in the series. But before we do, I have to show you something because sometimes what we're doing in preaching is we're bringing narrative. Like some messages we preach are like, here's two or three things you really need to do, just practical things you need to apply in your lives right now. And sometimes messages, there's a bigger thing going on. There's a storyline. There's a narrative for how we view the world that we have to get right or a whole bunch of other things will be wrong. And I feel like this wealth is one of those things that we have to have a proper narrative in order to really engage with God spiritually with our money. We have to have a proper narrative. And we have to have an understanding of our Christian history in this country and we have to have an understanding of, of God's feeling about wealth. And so well, I just want to take a couple of minutes, and I want to tell you, and I want to explore something with you. Did you know that the laws in this book are actually the foundation for prosperity? Okay, I'm just going to say that again. And I know some of you are freaking out, so just give me a moment. The laws in this book are actually the foundation for prosperity. Now, again, you, some of you are going, oh, he just flipped and became a prosperity teacher. No. No, 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 no. You know that we're not into that. What I'm not saying is that if you have enough faith in your life, you're always going to be rich and you're never going to be sick. Absolutely not. That's a prosperity teaching. You know we don't teach that here. Absolutely not and I never will. But if you take, well, let me, let me tell you, let me explain to you what I mean. In this book, it says that you need to work hard, that you need to be honest and have integrity, and that you need to treat people with respect. Now, let me ask you something. If you take a nation full of people and you get them all to obey that, let's all work really hard and have honesty and integrity and treat other people with respect. What is going to happen to that nation as compared to another nation that doesn't follow those things? One nation is going to get very wealthy and one nation is going to get very poor. Is that not true? Yes. Am I not, am I, I'm just telling you the truth right now. If you doubt me, I'm going to give you a little experiment right now and what I'm about to say, caution, not politically correct, okay? And I really don't care. In fact, in some ways, it's more fun because it isn't. But here's your homework for the week, okay? Go out on your kitchen table and spread out a map of the world, okay? Just spread out a map of the world, okay? And look at all the countries on that map of the world and think to yourself, self, not in terms of climate, things like that, but in terms of the kind of country you would want to live in. Which are the countries you would want to live in and which are the countries that you most definitely would not want to live in? And you know what you'll find? And again, I know some, and we're not, again, we're not talking natural beauty because we lose on that one. Manitoba, we're out. <laughs> but look at the countries you would most want to raise a family in and live in, okay? And you know what you'll find in the vast majority of cases? They are countries with what? Christian heritage. Now, sadly, many of those countries, including our own, are going away from our Christian heritage as fast as we possibly can. And we are seeing the results of that. There is a fruit for that. Okay? But you look at it, and you look at the countries where you would least want to live, and you look at their heritage and their worldview. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because God's laws are for our good. Now, yes, you can follow God's laws and not get rich. Absolutely. This is not prosperity teaching. Follow God's laws and get rich. No, absolutely not. But God's laws are the foundation of prosperity. You take a nation of people who want to work hard and be honest and respect people, that nation is going to thrive. And nations that don't will not. I will show you this in a Proverbs, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about this because I'm trying to give us a proper narrative. Proverbs 15, 6 is this. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Now, again, we have to know how to read Proverbs. A lot of people don't know how to read Proverbs. This is not a verse of something that happens 
every single time. That every single person who is righteous is rich. Absolutely not. There are millions of Christians around the world today that love Jesus and have plenty of faith and they're poor. Also, this verse cannot be applied and you can never say that every single wicked person uh, has, uh, you know, trouble in their income. Some wicked people in this planet are doing very well for themselves. But what this is, is a general principle. That's what Proverbs are. They are general principles. That if you follow God's laws, God's laws are for for our good and God's laws will cause us as a general rule, not to just become rich because of whatever, but they will cause us to prosper. Okay? Now, I'm going to just, again, we're working on narrative here. This is really important. I read two fascinating books on this topic this last year. And I'm going to put them up there, uh, not because all of you should read these books, because some of you, you don't like the same books as I do. You'll read these books and they'll get tons of emails. That was a boring, terrible book, blah, blah, If you're that kind of a person, just don't read these books, okay? You don't need to. But if you're here today and you're a university student, perhaps, or you're a teacher or you're a politician or, or someone like that, uh, these are some really good books that actually I wish some Christians in the, in the right places would read because it would help you to, to defend a little bit of what we believe and why. But in these two books, these are two scholars, two historians, and they've gone back into history to show why Western countries turned out the way they did. How come in, in Western civilization we have democracy, we have a, a relatively fair judicial system where you're innocent until proven guilty, we've got a, you know, economics, we've got uh, wealth and all these sorts of things. How did we get here? They trace it back to Christianity. Now the one book in particular I want to point out is the one on the, on the right there. That's by a guy by the name of Vishal Mangalwadi. Okay? Now from right there you know, okay, he's not from Steinbeck. Okay? He's, uh, he's from India. Okay? He's, one of the, he's a leading scholar and in intellect in India. He's an Easterner. He's, he's, uh, he's not white. Grew up Hindu in the, in the Hindu uh, country there, Vishal Mangalwadi. Anyway, Mangalwadi, what he set out to do when he wrote this book is, as an Easterner, he's this is not a Westerner. Now, I'm going to quote to you some stuff he writes in his book as a person from India, as a scholar. He set out to write a book to see why are Western countries so much different from Eastern ones? Like, how come democracy thrives in these countries but doesn't thrive in others? How come, this is again, not me writing this book. This is Mr. Mangalwadi, okay? And why is there such, you know, so freedom of the press and why is that, you know, there's so much material wealth and comfort and there's much lower corruption? How come there's much lower corruption? And he set out to see why is the West so different from the East. And he did this uh, very long study. He now travels around the world speaking about this. Fascinating guy. Anyway, he does this long study of history as a scholar, and he comes down to one conclusion, why the West is different from the East. This is not me coming to this conclusion. This is him. Okay? He came down to one reason. He said, it's this book. And then he wrote this book here, the book that made your world. And he shows how the Bible has shaped everything about Western culture. Now we're leaving that. We're, unfortunately, we're leaving Christianity in the West and we're going to suffer the results of that. But the reason we have the institutions we have, freedom, and the kind of economic conditions we have with freedom and wealth and these sorts of things has to do with the Bible. And now I mentioned a couple of these already, but I'm going to put up a little list there, but he talks about so much, so much, so much more. But in there, he examines, this is just three, which I mentioned already, but he examines different things that come out of a biblical worldview that make a nation prosper, and he looks at hard work and honesty, integrity, and respect for individual human dignity. So let me just give you one example from number three there. For example, in the book, he, he looks, and again, he's a historian, and he asks the question, he says, how come every, over the course of about a thousand years, you know, 500 to a thousand years, how come every major labor-saving device the iron plow, the windmill, things like this that actually enabled Western civilization to make huge leaps in terms of feeding people and population growth and things like that. He wonders in his book, as an Easterner, this is not me, he wonders, it's not that you know, we're smarter than everybody else around the world, how come all these inventions, every single one of them, and he goes through a whole bunch of them, come out of Western countries, not Eastern? And he shows, he says, you guys don't even appreciate it, it's because of this. He says, because in your culture, even people who aren't born again, going, and especially going back a couple hundred years ago where our forebears were completely steeped in a biblical worldview, he says, you guys, your worldview tells you to respect human dignity. And so as a result, you have this desire to make things better. 
A desire, how are we going to feed more people? Like people just have this desire in life. How can we feed more people? How can we make things better? How can we save this intense labor that takes away from human dignity and free ourselves up to do other kinds of things? And so he shows in there how that kind of motivation causes people to invent things that make things better. Then he, com- he compares this to his country of India. And again, this is him speaking. He can say this. It's not me, okay? If you don't like it, you write him a, a letter, Okay? Um, get the book and write him a letter. He talks about how in India, he says, look at how Hindu thought is so different. Because sometimes in North America, we're just like fish in the water. We don't even notice what we believe and how different it is. He shows how in Hindu thought, in Hindu thought, you've got this whole caste system, first of all, different castes or classes of people. And at the bottom, you've got these untouchables. And this still happens in India today. It's absolutely horrific. It's a horrific system. But you've got like something like 300 million untouchables right now in, in India, and they live hor- a horrible existence. He says this has been going on for as long as there's been Hinduism, and he says the upper classes have no motivation to invent labor-saving devices because their labor-saving device are people. But second of all, he says, and here's, here was an important point he makes, he says a Hinduistic worldview does not promote compassion. Now, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there are no Hindus that are compassionate. There's many Hindu people who are wonderful people who are compassionate. What we're talking about is they're, they're, they're compassionate in spite of their worldview, not because of it. Their worldview does not promote it, and here's why. Hinduism teaches, and again, this is, you can read his book. This is not me making this up. In there, he talks about how Hinduism teaches reincarnation. Reincarnation. So everybody here is, who's here on earth right now, you were something else in a previous life. And the reason this fights against compassion is those people in the untouchable castes, the reason they're having the horrible lives they are is because they're suffering because of bad things they did in a previous life. So in other words, I have no motivation to make their life better. They're getting their just desserts for something they did in the past. That's what a Hinduistic worldview does. Okay? Now again, there are individual Hindus who are, can be wonderfully compassionate, but the worldview doesn't create space for compassion like that. And they just go on and on and on. Both these books, wonderful books, they trace it historically. And again, what we look at here is, what you say, why are you bringing this up in this, in this message on wealth? We need to stop being petty about wealth. The idea that to be wealthy is to be bad is to completely ignore our history and the fact that God's laws were actually made for us as a nation to prosper. Does that make sense? So we need to have a new view of money. Not money is bad, but actually, no. I want to, and some of the most generous people I know in this church, I know some generous poor people, but I know some generous people who are very wealthy, and they have nice stuff, and they use that stuff for Jesus. And they love people tremendously. So we have to have a godly perspective of wealth. Wealth is not a bad thing, but wealth is something that is to be held with an open hand and given back to God in generosity and love. So I want to finish this message with one last passage, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. And I'll just read the whole thing, and then we'll pull, pull three things out of it to end this message. Uh, verse 17 here, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I just want to pull three things out of this passage, but before I do, I want us just to take a moment and I want us all to notice what this passage does not say. Okay? I want us to notice what this passage does not say. Okay? Have you picked up on it yet? Because Paul's speaking to the rich here in this present age, which, when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we're, most of us are in this passage. But I want you to notice what he does not say in this passage. He does not say, I charge the rich in this present world to give away everything they have and become poor. He does not say that, does he? See, and again, I'm, I'm very passionate that we have a proper narrative about wealth. And part of the reason is there's this strain of social justice Christianity that is, that is rising up right now, and, and it's not all bad. We believe in social justice. We have spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of this church's money and our money uh, in Uganda doing amazing stuff. In that Four Winds housing, we give away so much food in this town. We give, it's a lot, okay? And we help people, and we believe in helping the poor, and we should. That is a big part of the gospel, Okay? 
But there is this false social justice movement, which is actually replacing Jesus with social justice and worshiping that instead, that is almost basically a form of communi- Christian communism, which is that they almost think that the gospel is about, lit- like literally it's about almost becoming uh, communist or something, where we all just kind of become poor and there's no more inequality, rich, and it's always about inequality and equality and all this sort of stuff. And the fact of the matter is, that is not what this book teaches. It's not. This book teaches us to worship Jesus and be generous, absolutely. But he does not say in this passage, I charge the rich in this present age to give away everything they have and become poor. What does he say to the rich? He says this, okay? So the rich in this present age, first thing, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, don't be proud. You mix pride with wealth, and that wealth is going to become your downfall. And it's the easiest thing in the world. Where does pride come from? It comes from, I start to see everything in my life as it's because of me, how good I am. And now it's like, it's all about, and, I, and it's the most natural thing in the world for our flesh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel good about myself and all the things I've accomplished. And I'm going to become proud. And he says, I want you to charge the rich in this world not to become proud. Now, what's the antidote to pride? He tells us in the very next line, okay? In order to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. Everything you have. Now, actually, before I even talk about the part that's underlined there, I want you to notice the two, two words. I should have actually maybe underlined them and done a separate point on them. I want you to notice at the end of that line, God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Some of us have this picture of a miser God that the only time he's happy with you is when you're giving something up, when you're not happy when you're suffering, when you don't have anything. I want you to notice that this passage actually casts for us a picture of a very different God than many of us picture. Paul is worshiping. He talks to the rich. He says, don't be proud because it's God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. He actually gives us things. You know that God actually provides us with things so we can enjoy them? Some of you are almost shuddering. Oh, It's like false teaching because you think anything that's happy or generous, that must be false teaching. God is angry. God wants me not to have anything nice. Absolutely not true. He richly provides us with everything. He even provides us with things to enjoy. But if we go back to that, he richly provides us with everything. Everything you have. This is actually something that we need to internalize and it's not going to come from just listening to a message. We actually have to work at this. We need to go home and pray about this and meditate on it and thank God for it. That everything you have and you are is from him. So you look at your life, whatever it is, in business or whatever, me here in the church, whatever, different things, whatever your area is, and you feel pride about whatever success you feel you've had. Who gave you the ability to do the things you've done? Did you knit yourself together in your mother's womb? Did you sit there and go, I'm going to give myself great leadership and business ability and knit it together into your brain? You didn't knit that into your brain. Who decided? You never decided it. You're just who you are. He put it in you. He had a plan for your life. He put it in you. You know, it's another amazing thing. I've read a number of biographies in my life. One of the things I've been blown away at many, especially guys who have been in business, most guys who have ever been successful in business have got a couple times in their life, the thing that made them so successful is they actually got really, really lucky. Really, really lucky. Like, they just happened to be in the right place at the right time to have the right set of abilities to capture something, and boom. I mean, think of a Bill Gates, for example, okay? So the guy is the richest man in the world still today, all right? And me and my daughter the other day were looking at pictures of his house online and going, wow. (laughs) That's really neat. Um, and he's smart, and he's worked hard, and he's done all that sort of stuff. That's amazing. But you know what? The guy got lucky, didn't he? He just happened to be, he was a computer nerd. If you read his story, he was a total geek, and I love you geeks out there. I see some of you in the, in the this is not against you, but you're just, you're, you're a geek, okay? So you're a nerd. Um, and he, this guy was a geek. He was all about programming, and he just happened to be born at a time and to be a total nerd at the very time before anyone else had invented a thing called Microsoft and Windows and all that stuff, right? So he drops out of university because just, he just loves to program and he's really good at it and he's right at the right moment in history to be the one who starts this company which becomes one of the biggest you know, companies in history. And yes, 
Is he smart? Is he talented? Did he work hard? Absolutely. Don't begrudge him any of that stuff. But in the end, it could have been someone else. If he had been born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, he totally misses that ship, doesn't he? Because there's lots of other smart programmers out there that aren't worth 75 or $80 billion. So wait a minute. Who decides where we get born and how we got in the right place at the right time? And that thought that came into your mind that just happened to really work out for you. Who put that thought there? Who put the people around you? You're on a path that a sovereign God saw thousands of years ago before you were, you know, anything, nothing. You weren't even a spot, nothing. You were nothing, right? You were nowhere. And he had a whole plan for your life, and he sovereignly put it into place. And we look back and we go like King Nebuchadnezzar. He looks at Babylon and he goes, look at an amazing king I am. And God says, I'll show you how much of that is because of you. And he takes it away from just like this. And for seven years, he's outside eating grass outside the city. And then God says, now I'll show you who's really in charge. And he snaps his finger, brings him in and makes him king again. Everything you and I have is from God above. And that's not just something I need to preach to you. That's something you need to go home and pray about and meditate on until it gets in here. Because I'm going to tell you, it's going to radically change your life when it does. The moment it really grabs in here that I'm actually really not that special. I'm special in the sense that Jesus loves me and I'm his kid. That way I'm special. But in terms of the things that have been accomplished and things I've done, I'm really not that special. I am just a tool in God's toolbox, part of his plan, and everything I have is from him and everything I've ever done is because of him. The moment that actually grabs in your heart, a couple things are going to happen to you. First of all, that's humility. And second of all, on the tail of humility comes gratitude. And when that really grabs in your heart, you're going to be so filled with gratitude. And when you realize that everything you have is from God, you're also going to realize that everything you have is for him. And you're going to open up your hands in gratitude. And that's when the next thing's going to happen, which is this. They are to do good and to be rich in good works. Rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So the first thing is don't be proud. How come we're not going to be proud? Because everything I have is from him. When I get that into my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, something else is going to happen. And now I go from holding on to my wealth and chasing my wealth and worshiping my wealth. I go to saying, Lord, thank you. And I open up my hands. And I enjoy what he's given me, but I have open hands with it and I give it all back to him. Because everything that's from him is also for him. And it's a revolutionary mindset. And when you grab onto this now, rich in good works, someone who is a believer in Jesus, if you're walking with Jesus to the level that he has been rich to you, we need to look at ourselves and say, have I been rich back to him? To whatever the level that he's been rich to you, have I been rich back to him? Am I just doing the odd good work, the odd thing, throw a few bucks at this, I feel better about myself? Or do I literally have my hands open and I'm just full of joy at what he's done? I say, thank you, Jesus, everything I have. I'm just, oh, you've taken so much care of me. Lord Jesus, I just want to use it for you. Rich, rich in good works. Rich in generosity and good works. Which then brings to the last point, which is, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There is a pleasure you can get from enjoying material goods in this life. Absolutely. There is a pleasure that comes from spending your money on yourself and enjoying all the toys, absolutely. If, if that wasn't true, nobody would do it. But there is a greater pleasure you can't experience until you open it all back up to God and you get into this cycle of, Lord Jesus, you've given me everything, and Lord, I want to use it all for you. You give me this house, I'm going to use it for you. You give me these toys, I'm using it all for you. You give me this money, I'm using it all for you. There's a place when you get into that cycle with God, there is a joy as you realize it's him taking care of you, and as you give back to him, there is a joy that is truly life that you cannot experience just by having stuff. So let me finish with this weekly challenge and then we'll sing a final song about trusting him. Three things I'd love to challenge you to do, those of you who want this week. First of all, make a list of all the ways God has blessed you. Not just money and material things, but include them. And just spend time being thankful and adding to that list throughout the week. Just, just being grateful gratitude is the start. It's realizing everything's from him. I know some people are worried. I'm, I'm worried about being proud. You want to get rid of pride in your life? Be grateful. Be grateful. Be thankful. So make a list. And then as you do that, have a couple of days and ask yourself this question. Do you trust God to keep taking care of you in the future? 
One of the reasons we're so worried about our money and our finances is because we don't trust God with the future. You look in the back and see how much he's taken care of you, it would be ungrateful. When we see how much he's taken care of us in the past, it'd be ungrateful for us to worry about the future. Because when we realize he's taken care of me in the past, he's going to keep taking care of me in the future, and that's why I can open up my hands like this. He's always taken care of me. Pray about that. And then lastly... Have a conversation with God, a happy conversation. I'm telling you in this series, one of the things I want to take off is guilt and fear. I do not think it's biblical for Christians to be covered in guilt and fear about their giving and about their money. Absolutely not. So have a conversation, a happy conversation with God. Prayerfully tell God you want to be rich in good deeds and generosity, storing up treasure in heaven, and just have conversations with him about that. I know some of you are scared to death about talking to God about your money because you think the only time he's happy is when he's taking something away from you. But I dare you to discover who God really is. He has blessed you thus far. He will continue to take care of you in the future. And when you open up your hands to him, you're going to discover real life. You can trust him with everything. You can trust him with the repairs on your vehicle. You can trust him with your house. You can trust him in everything. Have a conversation with him about this passage and say, I want to be rich in good deeds and generosity. So let's pray, and then we'll finish with some worship. Father, we love you. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for not condemning us. We want to be a church that stands out for gratitude. That we are so blessed that you have done everything for us. There is not a hint of pride in our lives. There's not a hint of pride in this group. That it's just we're so blessed that you have taken care of us. And out of that, Father, we just open up our hands in joy. And we offer our whole lives back to you. And we find real life in that. Lord, some people sitting here today are having trouble trusting you. They've got bills to pay. They don't know how they're going to do it. They've got things to fix that have come up unexpectedly. Father, you will take care of us in all things. And Lord, some are sitting here today and you have made them uh, wealthy and you have made them successful. I thank you for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that they would find the joy of serving you with the things you've given them. Fill us with joy. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.